Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Today, we're featuring excerpts from a fascinating archival interview from the City University of New York's Leon Levy Center for Biography. In March 2013, celebrated authors Hermione Lee and Gary Giddens sat down in front of a Leon Levy Center audience for a lively discussion about Lee's award-winning body of work, including her impressive biographies of Virginia Woolf, Edith Wharton, and Penelope Fitzgerald. Here's Gary Giddens. Thank you for being here. It's an honor for us. A great pleasure for me. I want to begin with your work in particular and issues of process and decisions you make. So let's begin with Virginia Woolf because the framing device that you used, it reminds me of uh, Nabokov wrote a short story, I think it was called The Vane Sisters, in which he used an acrostic and he said, this is the kind of thing that can only be done once in a thousand years. And I thought, well, that's the, true of this as well. Uh, you begin the book by quoting all the other Virginia Woolf biographers, which I thought was brave. And then you talk about your own intimidation, uh, which, which I don't think any of us believes. And then uh, you, the entire first chapter, which is simply astonishing, you talk about Woolf's obsession with biography and quote the many instances of where she just is, speaks in utter contempt, mm. which is setting yourself up with more hurdles than I think anyone would want to ever face. When you started by mentioning um, Nabokov, I thought you were about to talk about Pale Fire, which has a completely <laughs> crazed biographer, um, uh, the, the sort of point to which all biographers think they might at some point. Arrive, which is to be the narrator of *Pale Fire* and the editor of that poem. So I'm relieved that it wasn't that that you were, uh, that you were coming at. Um, the, the first sentence of my book is, um, "My God, how does one write a biography?" Uh, which is not my sentence. Uh, it's Virginia Woolf's sentence when she was trying to write the life of Roger Fry uh, at the same time that she was beginning to write what possibly was going to be a memoir or might have been a published memoir of her, of her own life had she lived. Um, one of the reasons that I didn't do a sort of standard cradle-to-grave model for Virginia Woolf was because she herself, as you've said, was so um, preoccupied with biography and what was wrong with it. And uh, in her time, in the early 20th century, she was still, alongside her friend Lytton Strachey, very much... Uh, aware of a kind of tradition that had grown up in the 19th century, which I think has been a bit unjustly pilloried by the modernists, mm-hmm. um, of the sort of, you know, the big, solid, three-volume lives and letters. Uh, that we write now. Uh, well, we've come back to it in a yeah. way. Uh, but, but not hagiography. I mean, one of the problems, I think, that she and Strachey felt was that these books were too, uh, too virtuous, too bland, too, uh, too panegyric in their methods. And also she felt that they were untrue to 
real life, to life as it's actually lived. I don't know if I could kick off. I have one paragraph yes, that I wanted means. to read. This is the only thing I promise you that I'm going to that I'm going to read. But it's just it just since you set this up so well. This is a piece she wrote about a biography of Christina Rossetti in the 1930s. And this is what she, she says about it. Here is the past and all its inhabitants, miraculously sealed as in a magic tank. All we have to do is to look and to listen, and to listen and to look. And soon the little figures, for they are rather under life size, will begin to move and to speak. And as they move, we shall arrange them in all sorts of patterns of which they were ignorant. For they thought, when they were alive, that they could go where they liked. And as they speak, we shall read into their sayings all kinds of meanings which never struck them. For they believed, when they were alive, that they said straight off whatever came into their heads. But once you are in a biography, all is different. And so one of the things she wanted to do was to work out for herself, why should, be be, why should being in a, in a biography be so different from being in your life? To which the answer, she felt, is that we can't account for a life by a judicious, chronological, public narrative. Right. There, there are all these complicated internal things going on that we all know about all too well. Memory, yearning, confusion. How is a biography to represent those things? Presumably not with a kind of A to Z, cradle to grave method. So that was why I tried to... Um, to, actually, I was imitating what she said she did when, when she was working on Mrs. Dalloway. She said she dug out deep pools or caves behind her characters. So they would be living their life. The striking of the clocks would tell them what time it was. We all have to go somewhere. We all have a, a watch on our wrist, you know. Mm -hmm. But within them, they're in all kinds of time zones. Um, memory time zones, anticipation, or loss, all those things. So I tried to do that. I tried to imitate my subject and dig out, I mean, not literally, because that would be a mistake, but to, to dig out caves behind the chronology. That's what I was trying to do. You uh, began as a literary critic. You yes. published extensively. And of course, this, I think, is one of the reasons that your literary biographies are so fine. You're not afraid to make judgment and to, and to, to look at the work. You frequently talk about uh, how Wolf plays around with biography and biographical techniques in her novels. One of the uh, statements you make is, uh, or maybe you're quoting her, I can't recall now, but that uh, I think you're talking about Orlando, and you say that uh, for her biography, the revolution of biography was sexual. Well, I think that's probably my paraphrase of her, but I think that whenever she was thinking about life writing, as she herself called it, by the way, um, she was thinking about gender. I mean, as for, as for many feminist critics and as for many of us, issues of gender and issues of genre are very closely uh, intertwined. And so she was, she was puzzled as to why more women hadn't written their own life stories. And she's thinking a lot about autobiography as well as biography. And she's constantly writing to her women friends and saying, why don't you write your autobiography? Why haven't more women written that? I mean, she was partly drumming up books for the Hogarth Press, you know. Um, but, she says, you know, chastity and modesty have a lot to answer for. Um, why can't more women be like Rousseau? You know, why, why haven't more women spoken out about their sexual histories? And so um, that goes alongside thinking there's a sort of public form, public convention of the novel, of the biography, um, Freudian slip, which, which falls very strongly into a kind of male historical uh, 
tradition or convention. That is, you're, you, you're educated at school, you go to public school, you go to, this is in England in the 19th, early 20th century, you go to university, you have a career, you get your honours, you get your titles, um, you have a grand old age. That's the public scheme, which for many women, for women like her who didn't go to, to school, didn't go to university, was not an available model. So how do you change the model and make it more friendly, more sympathetic to women's lives. So it's both autobiography and biography that she's thinking about very much, as you say, in terms of gender. And you think Strachey may it must have influenced her, I should think. I mean, in in breaking through yeah. the hagiography and she didn't entirely like his biography. She. Um, she wrote an essay in 1939 called The Art of Biography. And I think the word art is very interesting in relation. You still actually see newspaper pieces called The Art of Biography. You never see newspaper pieces anymore called The Art of Poetry or The Art of the Novel. You know, right. it's kind of a dodo. But The Art of Biography is a phrase that stayed with us, but partly because I think people are very, I mean, we can maybe talk about this. Yeah. People are very ambivalent about how artful biography should be. Um, now, what Strachey wanted biography to do, and I don't know if, I'm sure everyone's here read the preface to Eminent Victorians, where he says he's going to attack the great Victorians from the rear, um, and he's going to lure a little bucket down and see what comes up, and he's not going to make moral judgments, and he's going to be very artful and rather wicked, and he is. And of course, he's had a lot of flack since for being wildly inaccurate and, um, and sort of too stylish. Uh, but at the time, I mean, it's 1918, significant year, the eminent Victorians comes out. There's a tremendous break with the with the past, and I think she was very yeah. I think she was very influenced by the fact that you can laugh at your subjects. You can be an equal to your subject. You don't have to be sort of reverential with your subject. That was the key, I think, for her. Now we're going to talk the your new book, which is coming out, I think, in the fall about Penelope. In in, in Britain, it's coming out in the Britain, fall. I'm right. not quite sure when or if here. But you can <laughs> order it on Amazon UK. <laughs> um, but that's, that's the first biography you've done where you're, you've got virgin ground here. You're the first person planting a biographical right. stone. The earlier ones, and particularly Virginia Woolf and Edith Wharton, you're coming into an area where they are, there are famous biographies that you know, we grew up with that were considered definitive in their time. And I know you have problems with the word definitive. There's the W.R.B. Lewis of Wharton, of course, and, and um, Quentin Bell. the Quentin Bell of Virginia Woolf, which you talk about reading when it, when it first came out. Yeah. Um, how much do their ghosts preside <laughs> over your desk when you're working? Well, I knew Quentin, and, and he was extremely kind to me. Uh, and he would say, I feel you're putting me in my grave. Um, but I used to go and see Quentin and Olivia, who is very fierce and very splendid and is still with us. And Olivia edited the diaries and gave Quentin enormous amounts of help uh, with the book. And, and Olivia was the sort of guardian at the gate. So I had to prove myself. So I would be going around to all these old members of the Wolf Circle who were still in the early 90s when I started my work. Many of them were still alive. Francis Partridge and Angelica Garnett and Stephen Spender. And, you know, uh, and I, I would go and see them and they would tell me the same stories they'd been telling people for 50 years and had also written down. And then the minute I left the room, I could just feel them picking up the phones. Another one's been round. Um, <laughs> 
doesn't seem so bad. You know, not as bad as some of those Americans who've been around. <laughs> um, <laughs> quite a lot of that would go on. Um, and Quentin was very generous, and I think he was relieved that someone was doing it who he could talk to and that it was going to be fairly sympathetic. But I think, yes, I was writing, as a lot of biographers do, in reaction to a very well-established version. Uh, Virginia Woolf said of Shelley, there are some biographies that have to be written for each generation. And I think that that's true of her, and I think it's also true of Wharton, I think it's also true of Willa Cather, these great figures. You know, once doesn't do it. Um, right. Because we rethink these figures, and they, they change through history, and, and um, uh, they're not the same. And, and she is a very, Wolf is a very shifting figure. You know, she's a Victorian daughter whom we think of as a modern feminist. I mean, so she needs to be rethought. So you're animated specifically in these instances more by your ideas about them than new material that's suddenly been uncovered. Well, um, there were a few bits of, uh, of new material here and there, actually, that, that sort of, you know how when you're working on something, you begin to create a kind of strange force field uh, and stuff starts sort of coming at you. So uh, with, with Edith Wharton, I did find a few surprising things, actually. But it wasn't the quest for new material. It was an attempt to think again about the relationship between the work and the life. And it was probably also a reaction against a certain way of thinking. For instance, I mean, there's some temerity for in my doing this, and I, I'm very conscious of it here in, in New York, but for Edith Wharton, for me, I felt that magnificent though the Lewis biography was, it seemed to me that it had somewhat underplayed the European yeah. side of her life, and that the whole European context and that kind of Proustian context, even though she didn't meet Proust, uh, was, was sort of thin, uh, or it hadn't been... For, so I suppose what I wanted to do was rethink her as a European, and, and, I, and I think many biographies are reactive in this way. And now, as you say, I'm doing something for the first time. So you have the responsibility just to the life, mm -hmm. just you and the life. And there's not all these other people in between, which is a new feeling. Now, in England, is Fitzgerald better known, more read than she is here? Yes, I think there was a little moment uh, in the late 90s when she published a novel called The Blue Flower. Um, yes. I hear a little saturation, which is always <laughs> very comforting to me. And she became well-known here, I think, for that, and also for a novel called The Bookshop, which is a sort of small tragedy about a woman in uh, East Anglia who tries to open a bookshop and is driven out by forces stronger than her. So she does... Actually, her model is Balzac, although she writes very small and he writes very big. But Balzac would say that a small provincial contretemps can be of as much moment mm -hmm. in people's lives as the Napoleonic Wars. So it's that idea, I think, that she does of a, a very apparently small, almost Austen-like scale, which can explode outwards. So, so, sorry, that's long answer to your question. Yes, I think she was known here for a while for the Blue Flower and the bookshop. I think she's still a bit of a cult. I think there are a few people who, when you say Penelope Fitzgerald here, they will go... Yes, right. uh, but more people don't. <laughs> so, and in England, yeah, I think my students don't know her, but people of my age do know her. And you were brought to do the life because of your admiration for the work? The family asked me. Ah. Um, this is one of those interesting predicaments for, for the biographer. 
there are three grown-up children, one of whom, with her husband, are the executor for the estate. Um, they knew that I was very keen on the work, and they came and said, would I like to write the biography? There had been a lot of family stuff about whether they wanted this or not, so it wasn't immediately after her death. So I said yes with great alacrity. I was thrilled to be asked. And they have been fantastically helpful, <laughs> fantastically helpful and generous and given me the archive and told me everything. And now they've read it. And they're fine, but they... <laughs> It's so interesting there. I mean, you were talking earlier about relationship between being the son of an author and being the biographer of an author. Uh, if you imagine each of you having asked someone to write your mother's life and you, you, you're helpful and then you read it and then you find all sorts of things out about your mother that you never knew. You know, I mean, in a sense, it's peculiar. I know her in some ways better than they do now. Um, one of them wrote to me in, in a bad moment and said, I feel you have taken my mother away from me. Uh, which was very upsetting to me, because that's not what I had wanted to do. But of course, while you're writing, if you are a biographer and you know this, you have to be completely ruthless. You have to have no morality at all. You have to write as if everybody is dead. Otherwise, you wouldn't put a single sentence down on paper, you know, because your natural human, <laughs> human self would kind of overcome your, your This writing. applies perhaps even more to writing criticism. Maybe. Yeah. What, ruthlessness, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, guess. if the person's still alive. <laughs> but it's so interesting what people mind. You know, they don't mind the things you think they're going to mind. Um, you know, the, some of the big difficulties in the life they're completely happy with. And then some very, very small thing. No, it wasn't a pepper pot. It was a salt pot. You know, that, that kind of thing. It's really furious. Um, but it's fine now. It's fine. <laughs> Did you have to change anything? No, I didn't change anything. One of the things that's become more and more apparent, I think, during the, 20, the last 20 or 30 years, and there are many exceptions, many, um, our deputy director here, John Madison, has written biographies of two 19th century American women writers. But more and more, I think, we see that men, white men are writing about white men, women are writing about women, black writers are writing about black subjects. Mm, it's a shame. Have you considered writing about a male subject? Well, I, I mean, I'm not averse to writing about men. Um, it's just the, 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 the big books that have sort of come my way or, you know, and I have written other books on male writers and I've written quite a lot about um, Kipling and Trollope and mm -hmm. Philip Roth and um, one or two other people. But it just happens that the biographical subjects have been, uh, have been women. They've been quite unusual women, I think. But no, I think it's a pity. Um, Is it a failure of imagination? I think we should be allowed out of our ghettos. I think we should be allowed out of our silos. I think we should all, we should, you know, if people want to write about someone utterly unlike them in race, gender, then I think they should. There shouldn't be any laws about this. When you write a biography, first of all, the, you've spent between, what, 10 years and that was the longest, on, I think? On I think Edith Wharton took... Well, I've always have a day job, so Virginia Woolf took about five years, but I took three years out of the day job to do it. Uh, Edith Wharton took about seven years. Penelope Fitzgerald's taken three or four years, yeah. I mean, you know, it's long. I know, but when I finish, 
I think never again, <laughs> even though I do it again occasionally, but you really get right back in the... <laughs> there's, always a, there's always a great moment when they die. <laughs> uh, I, I, was, I was working at home in the house in Yorkshire that, that is my husband's house, and he was going out to work every day as well. I was working, writing Virginia Woolf, and he was going out to teach in Leeds where he was teaching, and I was sitting at home with Virginia Woolf. And he came home one day, and I came down the stairs, and I was, I was crying. And he said, what's the matter? And I said, well, she, she's dead. I, I, I killed her today. And he said, yay! <laughs> Yes, I know the feeling. I, I've often said that if I sign to do another biography, it will be someone who died before the age of 40. You have a line in one of your essays, I can't remember where, or maybe it was an interview, in which you quote Michael Holroyd as saying that he thinks biography is dying or dead. And I was thinking that thanks in part to Michael Holroyd and Richard Holmes and mm -hmm. Elman and Adele that were in a kind of golden age. Why, why do you think he... Every time I open a newspaper at the moment, every time I go online, I see another article which says biography is dead. Have you seen these articles? Every so often you get this, you know, the novel is dead, um, but it bounces back. And so at the moment, biography is dead. And this, it's sort of slightly crushing. And I, th I think what is meant is that biography is changing. And that's a wonderful thing. And I think those of us who are still writing single lives of individual writers or performers or whatever are maybe becoming dinosaurs. I mean, there are so many wonderful, uh, different uh, experimental things that one can do with literary biography. Now. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that one can experiment so much with political biography or historical biography. I think people are much more leery of that. Um, there was a, now I'm going to forget his name, there was, a, you'll know, there was a book about Reagan called Dutch. Oh, Edmund Morris. Edmund Morris, thank you. Do you and he, he kind of had imaginary scenes where he had sort of conversations with Reagan, which he couldn't possibly have had, and people said, we want our money back, you know. I mean, this guy got a huge advance, and it was supposed to be the real thing, you know, and here was all this fantasy. Whereas if you're a a literary biographer. Mm -hmm. I think you can do more experimental. And there are so many interesting ver varieties going on with the shape and the form and the genre of biography. So you will get things like um, James Shapiro's wonderful book, uh, 1599, a, a Year in the Life of William Shakespeare. Or you will get group biographies uh, like Jenny Uglow's The Lunar Men. Or you will get biographies of people who couldn't have had biographies written about them maybe 30, 40 years ago, like um, Alison Light's book on Mrs. Wolfe and the Servants. So you have the whole story told from the point of view of, of Virginia Woolf's cook and her, her maid in that last generation that had live-in servants. So I think things are changing. And when people say biography is dead, I, I reassure myself by thinking that what they mean is that it's changing and that the form is changing, the possibilities are changing. Well, it's changed so much in the, just in the post-war era in terms of the uh, strictures we put on sources and yep. research and, and assumptions and, and all of that. I mean. But these conventions go by very fast, don't they? If you think about 19th century biography that we were talking about earlier, there aren't any footnotes in 19th century biographies. You know, that whole thing about verifying your sources 
and giving, you know, as I've done in, in mine, giving page after page of exactly where everything comes from. That professionalization of the genre is really only came in maybe 100 years ago, right. um, less. Well, the the ultimate example, I suppose, is Boswell's Johnson. Would that even qualify as a biography today? It's extraordinary that it still remains a kind of blueprint almost for the genre. Because when you, I don't know how many people in this room have read it. I mean, it's fabulous to read. Oh, yeah. But it's very eccentric. As a, for one thing, the bit of Johnson's life when he knew Boswell, you know, is this big. And then the rest <laughs> of Johnson's life is, you know. So, um, <laughs> and that whole thing about him following him around and taking notes in the bathroom after the, you know, dinners and so on. I mean, there are vast, long conversational scenes of the sort that you would rarely get in a biography now. I mean, that 18th century idea that Johnson himself promoted, that you ought to know the subject, that you ought to be familiar with the subject, is a much less common assumption now. In fact, we rather assume that you would have some distance from right. the subject rather than that you would know Bing Crosby or, you know, whoever. It's fascinating to me that the pre-Johnsonian era of biography, going back to Plutarch and so forth, is to write about generals and military people and not poets unless they're also military people. Mm. Um, but once you have the lives of the poets and Boswell's Johnson, literary biography, I wouldn't say it dominates, but it becomes mm. extraordinarily Johnson becomes significant. A, Johnson becomes a great hero of the 18th century. Here you have this neurotic, fat, smelly, ugly, uh, depressive, bullying, tormented, ill-mannered lexicographer, you know, and he becomes the great hero of the 18th century. It's extraordinary. I mean, you know, you could, no one could be further from Alexander the Great. And yet there is a kind of heroism about Johnson's life. I mean, Johnson, that description of Johnson fighting the fear of death and fighting his depressions, like a prisoner in the Colosseum doing battle with the lions. I mean, it's the point at which the interior life becomes the subject for heroic narrative. And what a fantastic thing that is. Right. Well, and Boswell is even more yes. deplorable with his 47 yeah. cases of gonorrhea. But... Good old Boswell. Yeah. <laughs> That's an incredible relationship. Johnson said so many unkind things about him, and I'm sure they were all deserved. And yet, he somehow recognized mm. that he could put his life in this There's man's something hand. something paternal, perhaps, about the, about the relationship. Um, yes, there was an affection, definitely, on, uh, on Johnson's side, I think. And then, of course, Boswell, who was completely hopeless and chaotic, took forever to do it. So there was this wonderful issue of deadlines, whereby everybody else who knew Johnson was getting their memoir out and getting their version out. And Boswell had to keep saying, Mine is going to be the one that you need to buy. Mine is going to be the one that counts because I'm the person who knew him best. Uh, you know, so there's this constant sort of self-advertisement that Boswell has to do, and then finally he gets it out. And it is a great book. Right. Do you um, mind if you hear a year from now that somebody else is doing Wharton or Wolf? Or do you, you don't feel like a kind of possessive... <laughs> You've got to feel it while you're doing it. If you don't feel while you're doing it that you are the person that knows them best, that you are the person that is most involved with the story, then, then you haven't got the affect, you haven't got the, the passion, the, the sort of necessity. There's got to be a sense of necessity, otherwise you'd stop. And then the minute it's done, 
you have to let go. I think the worst thing is a kind of subject possessiveness, or you can't write about that person because I've written. I know it. I've had experience of it in the Jane Austen field. It's funny how some, you know, writers attract a very competitive brand of scholar. You know, I gather the Shelley people are quite tricky. Yeah. Um, I've never gone there. You know. Um, but the Jane Austen people are quite fierce, you know. If you go there, it's quite fierce. Um, and I did hear a story about someone who, who tried to stop someone else writing a book about Jane Austen because they had written a book about You can't do it, you know. It's, it, they belong to the world, these people. They don't. It's true that if I heard that someone else was about to publish a biography of Penelope Fitzgerald at this moment, I might be a little antsy. Right. <laughs> it's the same in music. I, I remember when I wrote my fifth or sixth review, the editor said, you're going to get letters. And I said, really? And he said, yes, there are five musicians you cannot write about. They're organized. They're fans. And you will get letters. Who were they? Oh, God. Uh, the one that I got in trouble with was a trumpet player named Maynard Ferguson, okay. Herbie Hancock. Uh, Herbie Hancock, uh, we went to the same college. We've been friends forever. But uh, uh, one of his roadies tried to break into my hotel room. He was so upset at something. I wrote Herbie had to pull him. Wow. Yeah. This, is a this is a far cry from Virginia Woolf's. <laughs> uh, tell us about Wolfson and how the life writing. OK. So Wolfson College is a, a big international graduate college at Oxford. Um, uh, Oxford has many colleges, most of which are mainly undergraduates with some graduates. But in the 60s, a number of graduate colleges were set up because graduates didn't really have a proper home. This college was founded by Isaiah Berlin, the great uh, liberal philosopher, in the late 60s. Um, it's a little bit outside Oxford, just on the edge of Oxford by the river. It has a very beautiful setting. Come and visit me if you ever, if you ever come there. Um, and it has, it's very international and it's very multidisciplinary. So it has people working in all kinds of areas from ethereology to quantum computing. So when I got there, one of the things I wanted to do was to concentrate more kind of academic cultural activity within the college. So I, I set up a number of academic clusters, including one in the ancient world, one in Tibetan studies and various others, and one in life writing, because I thought I should bring my own expertise there. So we have very much as here, I imagine, we have workshops, we have conferences, we have lectures. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we're trying to keep it in tune with Wilson College. We're trying to keep the life writing center very interdisciplinary. And what is your role? Um, are you the president? You I, run? Yeah, I'm the director of the Life Writing Center as a kind of side shoot of being the president of the college. And one of the, one of the nice things about it is that I think sometimes Oxford feels a bit closed in. Um, and what I like very much is to open the gates of the university to people who are maybe living nearby or who are not academics or who want to come in and talk about their work. So we're doing also workshops on life writing for just the, you know, anyone who signs up, really. Is life writing frowned upon in the academy there? Because it sure is here. It is still here. Oh. This is such an interesting history. I, when I went to Oxford in 98, I had the Goldsmiths chair at New College for 10 years, and then I took the job at Wilson. And in that 10 years, when I was in, mainly in the English faculty, I introduced a 
course for undergraduates on biography and autobiography and life writing course because I'd done a little bit of that at York University where I was before. And at that stage in 98, there had not been a, any kind of life writing course within the English literature syllabus at Oxford. And there was a bit of persuasion had to be done. This is such an interesting question. Why has it been the case that autobiography has been theorized and been part of the academic right. enterprise? And biography has somehow been seen as a slightly maverick, perhaps too popular, uh, perhaps not sufficiently serious genre. So I come back to this phrase, the art of biography. You know, how do we talk about the art of biography? Should it be an art? Should one be conscious when one's reading it of the art of the artistry that has gone into it? Well, this brings us back to definitive. Does your book uh, erase Quentin Bell's? Does it erase? Of course not. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's like mulch. <laughs> you know, a, posthum a posthumous life of a great writer is, gets mulched over. Um, so you don't erase anything. You, a reader might prefer one or might prefer another. A reader can see that one biography, I mean, a biography is written out of the time it's written in, the, the, the gender, the race, the educational viewpoint of the person who's writing it. So it's corrective rather than erasing, it seems to me. No, lives don't stay still. There's an argument which you will be very familiar with about whether biographers should say I and whether they should put themselves into their books. And, and there are some biographers who are very happy to say I. Uh, and there are other biographers who scrupulously, pointedly exclude themselves and give an impression of an objective, a completely objective operation. Um, I'm sort of caught in, in between because I, I don't think biography is a form of autobiography. Um, I don't think that the biographer should be jostling you all the time and saying, look at me, I've done something different from the last person or whatever. Nevertheless, it's, it's the case that you are writing the book. It has something to do with you. The version that the reader is reading has something to do with you. And because I'm very influenced by Richard Holmes and that book, Footsteps, which is a, a wonderful book, I think, um, I did do a little, and I did the same with Edith Wharton, I did do a little narrative of, of myself growing up in London, um, born in 48, so within the same decade that she died, living in very similar places, kind of crossing that territory all through my childhood. It doesn't give me the right to know her or anything no. like that, but it, it means that I, I kind of knew all about her as, as a child. And, and so I suppose I grew up into a sense of knowing her, and I wanted to put that in at the end of the story. And I ended it by going to the house, which is the house into the lighthouse, which is, of course, not in the Outer Hebrides, but in Cornwall, the house she went to. So, and I remember going the first time and, and knocking on the door of Talent House and saying, I'm terribly sorry to bother you, but uh, I've come to look at this house because Virginia Woolf spent her childhood here. And the man said, I wish I'd never bought this bloody house. He said, <laughs> every, every two minutes, there's, some, there's Japanese in the bathroom, there's... there's there's Germans climbing up the drain pipe, you know. And he was really, really cross, um, and he wouldn't let me in. He let me into the garden, 
So I end the book quite, it's true. You know, I was in the garden and I, it was getting a little bit dark and I was standing outside the house and I couldn't get in and I could see the view. I mean, of course, it's a different view because there's been a lot of building. Um, but you can still see the sea and you can still see the lighthouse beam going round. It's a very moving closing. Uh, we haven't said anything really about Willa Cather and I'm just wondering <laughs> how you chose Willa Cather. I adore Willa Cather. I think she's a great, great genius. The Professor's House is one of my favorite, favorite novels of the 20th century. Um, and I, I come to all my subjects out of a passion for the work, and I actually didn't set out to write a biography of Willa Cather. It isn't really a biography, actually. It's much more of a book of it. It's my kind of in-between book when I was kind of making up my mind whether I was really a literary critic or a, or a biographer. And because she's so determined that you shouldn't know her private life and you shouldn't, you know, she's like a rock. So I thought the way to do it was to write about the work and to try and think as much as, as closely and as carefully as possible about the work. And actually, she's a person that I found very unyielding to work on. She's a very resistant force, Willa Cather. She wants you away from her, you know. And, and I didn't feel that with Virginia Woolf at all. I felt she was, you know, perhaps it's because of the diary. And now, you know, the amazing thing is Willa Cather put the embargo on the publication of any of her letters. So everybody paraphrases the letters, so all her secrets are known, but not in her own prose, which is the worst of all possible worlds. And she also put an embargo in her will that no adaptation should be made of any of her work in any form of electronic medium existing now or yet to be invented, <laughs> which is amazingly kind of preventive, you know, sort of. Uh, and now the embargo's been broken and Knopf is about to publish... It's broken by time? By the residual family, I think. I see. So they've said, oh, come on, this is ridiculous. So the letters of Willa Cather are about to be published by Knopf, which is a great day for rejoicing. I wish I'd had them. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> because I'm a literary biographer and I come at it from the point of view of, of uh, from the basis of an interest in the, in the work. Um, I suppose I have always tried to be as sympathetic as possible to the, the voice of the writer. And I don't mean by that a kind of parodic or, you know, duplicating mechanism for the voice. It's just that, as we were saying at the beginning, thinking about what Virginia Woolf thought about biography. I wanted that to somehow be reflected in what I was doing with, with her, with Edith Wharton because she's such a material girl, you know. I, I, wanted the, I, I wanted the book to be like richly furnished rooms so that you would go into the Italian room or you would go into the Henry James room or you would go into the dark room of France at war um, or you would go into the room of England. Mm. Um, and, and so I wanted it to be, you know, in a way <coughs> reflecting something about what she was like. So that's... That's really the best advice I suppose I would give, which is without being sort of parodic or imitative, to be as true as you can to the spirit uh, of, of the person that you're, you're writing about. And good luck. Hermione, this has been such a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you so much. <laughs> that was author Hermione Lee speaking with fellow author Gary Giddens in front of an audience in the City University of New York's Leon Levy Center for Biography on March 25th, 2013. Thanks again to the Leon Levy Center and to the featured authors for granting us permission to share this interview. 
to learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Bye.